0: No necessary. prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
1: Supporters for this podcast and the following message come from Disney and Pixar's Soul. Soul follows Joe Gardner, voiced by Jamie Foxx, a musician whose passion for jazz is all-consuming until one misstep sends him on a journey to figure out exactly what makes his life worth living. Now Golden Globe winner for Best Animated Film and Best Original Score by Trent Reznor, Atticus Ross, and John Batiste. Directed by Pete Docter and Kemp Powers. Soul is now streaming on Disney+. Plus. Okay, I'm just going to start talking as folks trickle in here. Welcome to another edition of Screen Talk Live. After a brief hiatus, we're back. I'm Eric Cohn with uh, IndieWire out of New York, and Ann Thompson, our editor-at-large out of L.A., is here as well. And, of course, we're joined by a very special guest, our dear friend Tom Quinn from Neon. And I say friend and then neon because we've known you much longer than that and it's really exciting to have somebody like you here right now because uh, as the CEO of this company obviously you've done some incredible work but I think one of the things that we knew would come out of having you as a guest on this podcast is that you're also a friendly face from a crowd that we miss seeing around, and and you and I were both at that crazy party at Soho House a year and change ago when Parasite had this historic win, and what I remember about it was that didn't feel like some crazy Vanity Fair type of situation. It felt Not like another all. kind of can soiree at the Grand or whatever, and and what do you think about the way that... Um, and we've related to the work of people like Tom over the years, because to me it feels sort of like there's been this really exciting sort of development where people from quote unquote, our world have really started to make a, this, this broader effect in, in the in film culture that Tom, we're really excited to ask you about. So,
2: so I think of, uh, I'm going to talk yeah, about I'm... you, Tom. Uh, I think of Tom as the definition of an innovator. That's really where I see him. I mean, he goes back to, to uh, radius and he also loves to play with capitals in a very annoying way, capital letters in all of the names of his yes. <laughs> radius, you know, which was capital, which was not. And then, you know, we write for a living. This is a, you know, drives us crazy. And then neon all caps, but, but basically you were pioneering in the digital space in a way. And, um, and, and also uh, there was that memorable uh, moment where you took um, Snowpiercer, and and uh, you know moved it into another sphere away from Harvey <laughs> Weinstein. Um, talk you know talk a little bit about that, about that, Tom. I'm curious because it led to Parasite. It led to it led to this extraordinary um, theatrical uh, moment.
0: Well, I, I, thanks for inviting me to do this with you guys. Uh, I, I think it's a long time coming. I miss you both, and I think this is the first time I've seen you without your hat, and it's something feels off uh, I <laughs> up and tell you ride right under the sun. Uh, but no, I'm, I'm super excited just to talk to you guys. Uh, and yeah, I can't wait to get back to the festival circuit. So, you know, I, I feel like a New Yorker at heart, not just personally, I spent 20 years there. I moved to LA last summer, uh, or the summer before last. And, you know, a lot of my friends and colleagues were distributors, uh, journalists, everybody working in the independent film community in New York. And so, you know, the Parasite win of, of you know, 18 months ago, uh, or a little less than that, was, was really, I felt like a celebration of all of us crazy art lovers in New York. Uh, and I felt like a lot of us were in the room. And so you know, yes, it was a wonderful win for Bong Joon-ho, obviously Parasite, but it felt like it was a real win for cinema. And for me, that sort of collegiate atmosphere of the thing that we miss on the festival circuit, I feel like, you know, it's it's especially relevant in New York. And so, you know, uh, you're referencing uh, Snowpiercer, you know, having worked at the Weinstein Company and Magnolia prior to that for Mark Cuban, you know, I, I got to meet Bong Jun ho uh, when we bought the host in director's Fortnite and started a long-term relationship with him. And, you know, essentially bought every film that he was a part of uh, except for Okja. Um And, you know, Snowpiercer was part of Radius which was a boutique label inside of uh, the Weinstein Company. But I was there to, I think, expand on all the, the great release strategies that we put together at Magnolia Pictures, uh, which you know we created the, the compressed window, the originally uh, shortened theatrical window in the day and date model, using VOD, I think, to make sense of what was a really difficult marketplace back in the mid aughts, and so. You know, Radius for me was an attempt to elevate that, to do movies that weren't VOD fodder, that uh, I think had real theatrical potential, which Snowpiercer, I think in in another company's hands, uh, you know, Harvey did not want to re- release Snowpiercer wide, which is why I wound up with it at the boutique label and Bung and I were excited to work together. Uh, you know, as the story goes, my one my one requirement uh, to Harvey was that if if I'm to release Bong Joon-ho's movie, it has to be his cut. And so I think we all gladly went into that scenario and it was this huge success. Uh, I think, you know, it was a sneak attack in terms of a theatrical launch and then uh, a surprise VOD launch weeks later. Um, but I think, you know, the last 15 years of working day and date, whether it was at Magnolia or or at Radius, you know, I, I think really informed all of the things that I wanted to do, the things that I wanted to be a part of. And the theatrical experience was something that just kept coming back to me in such a profound and real way. And, you know, uh, one of the festivals that I dearly miss going to uh, is uh, there are two of them in Austin and it's South by Southwest and Fantastic Fest. And I felt like, you know, early on in my career, uh, you know, going to that festival, it, it felt like my people who 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 worked in the industry that really loved art film. You know, uh, uh, we all sort of migrated down there during the New York Film Festival, during Fantastic Fest, and in March went there. Uh, uh, you know, to South by Southwest. But being inside the Alamo Draft House there was sort of where I immediately fell in love with the experience and the joy of seeing movies on the big screen. And it sort of informed my journey throughout my career from there on. And when I left the Weinstein company, I left with the intent to start a a label neon that was wholly committed to the cinematic experience. And, you know, it's not that I don't buy into the day and date release model. It's just that the kinds of films that I want to work on need to be experienced on the big screen. So.
1: Well, we have to talk more, drill into that in the, obviously the 2020 to 2021 context, the lack of the theatrical element on every level of the business has obviously been this dramatic change. And I remember It was really hard to get you to pin you down on the record in the last award season cycle to talk about this because it was this ever evolving thing. Would Parasite really cross over and then would it also become this awards behemoth that it did become? I couldn't even get you to talk about this until I found you at the bar, the Dolby Theater, like 20 minutes before it won Best Picture. But I'm really glad I did because the story you could tell there was this was a theatrical success story on so many different levels. So now you enter into this year where obviously everything's been destabilized and you can't move things around. You can't move your director to Los Angeles to campaign for three months or however long that took. And yet you have six shortlisted films in the international and documentary list more than any other company. So things have been working out fairly well in this most unusual award season cycle for the company. So Bring us into the strategy a little bit in terms of how you worked through the unique practical challenges there.
0: Well, I, I will say that the backgrounds at both Magnolia and Radius sort of informed how we should work at the beginning of the pandemic. You know, we sort of saw it coming and we realized we weren't gonna have the benefit of theaters, but the reality is we thought that we could still launch these films anyway and eventize them appropriately. So having brought several films out of Sundance, which we thought would be at least awards contenders at the end of the year, uh, and then buying several foreign language films in the fall, we felt very similarly that, you know, these are top tier contenders. But the idea of launching them in the virtual space through either virtual cinema, home entertainment, VOD, something transactional, and then where we could, incorporating drive-ins, other screens that were available to us outside of the major markets, I mean, it's, it's, it's not unlike the way that we were working, uh, I, I think, inside of the independent day-and-date space. So... You know, there are other executives that work at NEON who both worked at Radius, worked at IFC. And so we sort of knew what this looked like. The reality is, is we banged our head against the wall the entire year trying to replicate as much of the theatrical, eventized, experiential experience as we could. And, you know, little things that I was super proud of along the way that I think replicated that, you know, never replaced it, but, but did an adequate job of feeling like something special. Uh, Spaceship Earth. It was the first film that we launched inside of the pandemic. And we we uh, we exhibited it across a wall uh, on Houston. And, you know, it was symbolic, but it was also an opportunity to see the film. And, and people who lived around, uh, you know, in condos in and around Houston, we invited them to come see it on the wall. You could tune in online to hear uh, uh, the audio track, but the best part about that was Matt Wolf introduced the film at the location, being there, uh, and we noticed that people, you know, whether or not they were watching it on the street, people watched online Matt Wolf introducing his film. So symbolically, seeing him be there at that moment, live, I, I think that sort of set the trajectory for what we've tried to replicate through the entire pandemic and. Um, you know, I, I, I say this, it's a very, you know, small consideration, but we're all trapped in these little boxes and it's this digital prison that honestly, I cannot wait to break out of, but you know, what's really provocative. When do you see two people inside of these digital boxes? So, so as much as we can and safely as we can bring a filmmaker and a moderator into the same box to do a QA. Mm. Little things like that, I think, do stand apart. Um, but yeah, go ahead, Anne, sorry.
2: No, it's okay. They, I, I was gonna move on to the idea that you were one of the few theatrical distributors to step up to uh, actually acquiring uh, Night of the Kings, the Ivory Coast, which became the Ivory Coast Submission, early on and this is one of the most um, exciting movies I've seen but uh, of all all year I I have to say it's it's extraordinary Um, but but it is it is you must have had some confidence that you could make it work when other people people like Sony Pictures Classics you know who always buy foreign language films didn't get into it. it. Magnolia didn't buy another round. It, it didn't, you know. Goldwyn got it. You know, there was there was fear and trepidation, mm-hmm. and you didn't seem to feel the same uh, way as they did. And,
1: and you held on to Gunda, which is not exactly the easiest movie to watch on a small screen, though I have done it. It was a year played. ago
2: in Berlin that we both yeah. saw Gunda. Exactly. We love that movie. That's right. I. I-
0: the reality is we don't overthink it. Cinema is cinema and we're going to pursue it and we want the best cinema as we can as we can find uh, on our slate and all those films are that. United of the Kings is a story I had not seen before um, yeah. from Philippe Bacot and the Ivory Coast and yes obviously we think it should be a contender but the reality is is we want to support that story and him as a filmmaker and so you know I think Cueva uh, Saida by Mill is the same thing. It was our most recent acquisition, uh, actually that's not true, it was our last acquisition that's being launched this year, but um, yeah, I, I think we've decided that we're gonna make it work. You know, I, I get it that we're living in a streaming world, that we're living in a world without the benefit of theaters. Uh, but we've, I think, been working our way towards, you know, Radius being an example of it, Magnolia being an example of it, but we've been working at Neon in a world where we're competing directly with Neon, they, uh, with, with Netflix. Uh, Netflix has been our biggest competitor from day one, whether it was I, Tanya, um, or multiple films thereafter. So the idea that we're working inside of a streaming economy, uh, but trying to apply old world theatrical, uh, a theatrical business model to that is, it's really difficult and, and it's painful and it's hard to do. But we figured it out and the reason why we figured it out is because honestly one we stuck to our guns we, we only do the movies that we believe in and consistently i'm so proud of the slate that we've put together over the last four years but the other part is we have an incredible output partner with hulu that believes in exactly the same thing uh and you know the the old adage that foreign language films and non-fiction films don't work in the ancillary market, I've never believed that. And and I've seen it not to be true. It's not to say that all these films work, but in the aggregate, they can, if if you pursue them agnostically as incredible cinema. And and that's what we've done. Um, But Hulu bought into the idea that, yeah, we should value all these films the same, the same way that you do, Uh, but you should release them in theaters, in a traditional window, because when they come to us, they're going to be more valuable than if we were to premiere them ourselves. And so Mm -hmm. uh, I think it's a real simple philosophy and and proving some of the merit of that idea, whether it was the success of Apollo 11, Three Identical Strangers, as these two incredible documentaries that went out and found audiences who honestly had never seen a documentary before, uh, and Parasite, Portrait of a Lady on Fire. I mean, these these defy the convention of what people expect from these kinds of films. But for us, we see them the same as any fiction film that we have on our slate. And, and I and I, th- I love the fact that that they buy into that too. So being able to work with them, you know, a great example of it was Portrait of a Lady on Fire was in the middle of its run. I think it grossed about three and a half in, in the middle of the, uh, or, or at the start of the shutdown in the middle of March. And it was at such a height of, of its of its trajectory. And we thought we'd probably do maybe six or 7 million by the time uh, the theatrical run was over, but nobody was going to the theater at that point. And so we very quickly maneuvered to launch it across home entertainment, but also streaming day and day simultaneously. And, Hulu thought it was a great idea. We came up with the economics of of how to do it and how to make sense of it. And I thought it was the best thing for the film. So we didn't overthink it, Hulu didn't overthink it and it made perfect sense. So I think that sort of set the stage for every film needs to be handled differently. The streaming window can be held back 180 days. It can be moved up day and date with home entertainment. And each of these films, we've devised a strategy that is specific to that film. So, well, you know, I don't think we could have done this on our own, but with the benefit of Hulu, I, I think we've, we've been very, very uh, lucky. And, um, you know, we've still been able to support the films that, that we would in any other year.
1: Well this is a very raises re- a very relevant question that has come up just in the last 48 hours for you I'm I'm sure you we aren't the first ones to get to you in this latest phase there was another really good interview with you recently but we are probably the first ones to get you to talk about a movie that you just bought out of Berlin which is the latest Celine Sciamma film Petite Maman which I actually was very lucky to see with my, my colleague David Ehrlich The two of us in a screening room in Midtown. Um, And uh, I thought it was wonderful. It's a beautiful little 72 minute movie with like four actors, five actors, really innovative. But it's not a dazzling portrait of a lady kind of a experience in the same way. And And it certainly didn't have that kind of launch the way that you know, being in can competition with the red carpet and all that stuff did. So can you bring us into not just that deal, but the process of buying movies in the middle of this weird moment that we're in and how you sort of look at, um, you know, the the, the kind of deal making that's necessary when the future is so uncertain?
0: Well, I, we obviously we love Celine. Uh, she is one of our favorite filmmakers. And we'd, we'd obviously pursue any film she was a part of. Uh, we were, uh, you know, like everyone else, slated to see the film uh, at its Berlin premiere. And luckily, uh, I, I don't know who exactly came up with the idea, whether it was M.K. De Selene or somebody on my, my team, but we came up with the idea of, 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 we should go see it in the theater. And the team in New York went to see it at the Nighthawk uh, while everybody was seeing it in Berlin. And I went to see it at the, with the team here in LA uh, at the Fine Arts Theater in Beverly Hills. So this is the first time that any of us have been back in the theater. To see it. So. uh,
2: I'm envious
0: of all of you. The reality is, Anything could have been on screen and we we all would have
2: you <laughs> would have bought it. We would have played the, play have the super Bowl. <laughs> yeah.
0: We would have stood up and cheered, you know. But we went in like a bunch of tourists taking pictures of a the theater as if we'd never been oh. there. And, and I love that. the scene in New York took pictures of the Nighthawk. And the craziest thing, it was sort of like this cinematic experience post the apocalypse. The apocalypse is over because the posters that were still up were Parasite and Portrait oh. of the Lady on Fire, the last movies that were there before they shut down. And, you know... It was
2: preordained.
0: The, the, the portrait poster was, like, faded. I, I don't know. So seeing this film from Celine Siama under those conditions after having not been in a theater, yeah, we, we were primed. <laughs> so we, 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 we bought it immediately after. And, uh, yeah, I... I I, I was saying to Celine, I, I'm just so thrilled and excited we we get to do this with you again. And and you know I think the comparisons to Portrait obviously you know this fits into her Canada films quite beautifully. Uh, you know whether it's more reflective of Tomboy uh, or, versus Portrait of a Lady on Fire, but what I would say is I, I think the themes in this film are are much larger. And and you know some of the comparisons, you know, how does she? packed so much into, you know, a film, whether it was 72 minutes, I mean, it sort of feels timeless in a way. And, and uh, yeah, I, I, I was as surprised as everyone what this film was. And uh, yeah, I, again, we would have done anything to get it. and We
1: did. But just to the broader question, I mean, what is it like buying movies these days? How do you negotiate, you know, theatrical when, some theaters are opening, some aren't. Obviously you have a bunch of stuff opening. You have six movies opening in New York city this week. So you're in that world. We have three new
0: films and we have three old films that are are gonna be opening. So we've never done that before. So, So for all of the, you know, the woes about theatrical, you know, not being present, theaters not being open. There are a lot of theaters open, uh, but the reality is the theaters that we care most about in terms of how we launched our films, New York NLA, and San Francisco are not open. And and it prevents us from, you know, I wouldn't have been able to launch Parasite in the same way, which I think opening in one theater in New York, a, a tried and true method of launching incredible films, creating that line around the block. We haven't had the benefit of that. You know, the week prior we launched uh A day and date launch with Apple, R.J. Cutler's amazing, amazing film uh, about Billie Eilish. And it's a film that we chased for a long time and and so happy that R.J. delivered. I mean, it's an extraordinary film. It's as if boyhood, but with Billie Eilish. It's the coming of age of this young woman who happens to be, you know, this worldwide famous singer. Uh, and it's amazing and and so we launched that last week across six hundred and fifty theaters around the world twenty three territories. So theaters are open uh, and Thursday night of its premiere, it was number one in the country. Uh, so you know I, I think that's amazing. The reality is we weren't in New York, lA or San Francisco uh, and combined drive-ins as well you know there is an audience out there it's just not the same and so we will be opening uh that film at the village east this weekend we're opening quad Zaida at the angelica for its opening and knight of the kings uh, will be playing at the quad as well as the nighthawk so that's exciting the other three films we have, I can't announce yet, but they are films that have already opened that didn't have the benefit of a theatrical run in New York. So it's really exciting to be able to bring them back.
2: So tell me how you managed to do so well with the uh, shortlist. You know, you ended up with quite a few nominations on the doc side and the the foreign, uh, the, the international side. Um, wh- how did you pull that little feed off?
0: Well, I- I'm not exactly sure, so that's not a great answer. But I think one is we're agnostic about you know we we buy multiple docs every year and we buy multiple foreign language films every year, and so being agnostic, I think one it improves our odds combined with the kinds of films that really drive us. You know, we're we're buying films that we think must be seen in the theater uh, for a number of reasons, whether it's purely experiential or the idea that the audience is gonna be the best character in that film, you know, I think all those things drive the kinds of movies that we we buy uh, and wanna be a part of and produce. Um, the other is, you know, nonfiction for me has been a mainstay in in my career for 25 years. I, I, you know, one of my first favorite film experiences was working with Kirby Dick on Sick, The Life and Death of Bob Flanagan. And, Uh, I worked for Nancy Willen who ran the publicity campaign for that and going to Sundance with that film and the subjects, I just, it opened up a whole new world to me. And so I've long had a very deep rooted uh, passion and love for, for, for documentaries, but specifically the theatrical documentary, you know, seeing that Q and A with Kirby uh, and Bob's partner and their son, I just, where do you, where do you experience that anywhere else? And so I think all of that combines that you know we we lead with our heart and, and buy the films that we care about a lot. Uh, the other part is we have this we have this necessity as as a, as a team to do films that are ultimately about something. And I know that sounds very simplistic too. Uh, you know we we love films that are, are incredibly stylistic that have you know overwhelming amount of artistic merit. Uh, but we, we love films that are ultimately, you know, have purpose and really are about uncovering something that we, we may not know about, uh, that's issue oriented, um, you know, a film that we signed on to early this summer, totally under control, uh, which is not shortlisted. But honestly, in my mind, it's one of the most impactful films of the year. We took on the administration to uh, expose the corruption inside of the pandemic. And you know, Alex-
2: jumped onto a film that was going to be produced under extreme time constraints and duress.
0: Well, when Alex Gibney called me and you know, with his two co-directors, Suzanne and Ophelia, I got this idea, what do you think? I'm in I am totally in I want to find out what's going on. And this was in March. Uh, we we just started. And so how are we going to pull this off? and to do it secretively and to do it under the guise of a of an administration that frankly, i was I'm still shocked how afraid people were of 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 the former White House. And Ooh. you know, what, what I still it? am Some of us still I was going
2: to say some of some people are still afraid of him.
0: But what would the re? I'm I'm absolutely afraid of what he'll do. But I'm not afraid of standing up and speaking truth to power. Mm-hmm. And and so in this film, we we hoped would do it, and it did it. And so being an essential uh, piece of cinema that that can inform others about what's happening with this government inside of the pandemic prior to the election, it, it really made my summer worthwhile. So, you know, I'd love to see that as a best picture contender, uh, even though I'm it's sure not a shortlist contender. <laughs>
1: But
2: I think big, you always think big, Tom. You yeah, I was going to say,
1: well, this uh, is a nice segue. Into, if, by the way, if anyone listening has questions for Tom, you can hit that Q&A button and, and put them in there. And, and we'll try to work them in at the very end. But this is actually something else I wanted to ask you about, because you got this movie out of Sundance Flea, which is an animated documentary that uses the animated form to sort of tell the story of this this refugee. It's it's really amazing on so many levels, and we've been hearing about it for a long time. Now, obviously, there are several different things going on in terms of the potential for this movie. It's going to be a cool story that a lot of people will be talking about. From an award standpoint, I was thinking about how you really pushed for people to think big with respect to Parasite. I remember when you were sort of like, why why aren't you thinking about this movie as a best picture contender? And then suddenly we all started talking. And we're like, well, maybe we should be having that conversation. And I wonder with this one where it's like you have, okay, maybe best documentary shortlist, maybe best animated, maybe international, But if you get those three, why not go bigger? So how's that conversation going?
0: <laughs> yeah, that's wow. Uh, well, it's it's funny. I, I remember pre, you know, pre- telluride post can uh, for Parasite, you know, a lot of the discussion around Bong Joon-ho is it's Korea's greatest director. Uh, you know, this is a wonderful summation of hundred years of Korean cinema. And, and finally, this will be the Korean, uh, nomination. And I thought, well, I don't remember talking about Alfonso Caron this way. I don't remember talking about Guillermo del Toro this way. He is one of the world's, if not the world's greatest director. and, and, it should be a global phenomenon, not just a Korean phenomenon. And you know, it and it's not like I came to that conclusion overnight. It's I've been his biggest fan uh, since seeing the host. So uh, you know, so listening to you know, I, I think you may have been one of America. I was like, no, he's he's actually one of the world's greatest directors, and I think this film, uh, not unlike you know, whether it's Costa Gras versus Z, that you know dating way back that this is gonna be a multi-tier
1: nominee. Um, yeah. I mean, I was just so used to those kinds of things. Not, you know, I'd say you, you spend the year going to film festivals and trying to get the rest of the culture to care about those things you're seeing and you make peace with them being marginalized on some level. And I could see what you were doing there was sort of saying, hey, we don't have to think small. And it seems like that's, you know, even more important now, especially with films like like something like Flea, where, you know, you don't have any star, you don't have the rock star director in this case, but you have something cool. Well,
2: extraordinary I, I use of animation in a documentary. That's the main thing. Uh, I,
0: it huge shouldn't be innovation. told without the, the animation. I mean, yeah. that's the key part. And, you know, this was the first film we saw this year at Sundance. And, you know, hats off to Tabitha and Kim and the whole team. I mean, they delivered an incredible festival for a virtual festival. You know, we, we actually had a great time, got a lot done. So I just want to shout out Sundance. Um, the minute we saw it, we're like, we we went toe to toe and bought it as soon after as we possibly could. We knew it might be one of the best films we see at the festival, and yeah, I, I think again, it's a possible multi-tier nominee. And you know, whether it garners any awards or not, honestly, it doesn't matter. I, I love the awards because they ultimately highlight these incredible films to audiences that do care about that, and it does mean something. So, but it's it's a big film for us, and we are. Sort of the A team is working on it. Uh, we're we're doing it with participant, which is super exciting. Uh, which we also worked with them on totally under control. So I I, I think we can do a lot together. I, I love that team over there: Diane Wyerman, Laura Kim, uh, David Lindy. So it's it's everyone's working in
1: you know uh, towards the same goal here. But uh, sorry, yeah. I'm going to squeeze in a question that was submitted in the Q&A from this obscure industry insider named Michael Lerman, apparently, who <laughs> this question. He says, this has been touched on but not addressed directly. Tom, you've done so much to tap pieces of the market that have been neglected in a creative way, from Samoan Wedding all the way up. And as you say, valuing foreign language films like any other film with Parasite as a best picture contender what do you think is a market area that is next for you to explore?
0: Well, I, there
1: there are definitely
0: other areas that we have not explored yet, uh, but these, these are definitely things that we've talked about. Um, I, I'm a big fan of alternative content. Alternative content meaning anything that isn't, ascribed to, you know, being a traditional feature film. Uh, You know, some of it's dismissed as stand-up comedy. Uh, You know, I'm a big theater geek. That's my real passion. As much as I love film, I love theater. And there are a lot of plays that I didn't get to see. Uh, And there are a lot of plays that I have seen that I would have loved to have shared with the world. You know, I remember seeing a production in New York of Philip Seymour Hoffman and John C. Riley in True West by Sam Shepard. I saw that, and I went the the another night where they switched roles, and it's just one of the most amazing experiences to see a, a completely different interpretation of the same material. So it's a bit of an exercise, but if you're that kind of geek, I, I'm I'm only saddened that we we couldn't bring that to other geeks like myself. You know. So there'll be there'll be some exploration there for us. Uh, you know, production is a big deal for us now. Uh, that was always planned inside of uh, the growth of the company, um, nonfiction as well as foreign language as well as English language production. So, you know, we've made we've invested in a lot of stuff early, but I think in the Earth uh, by Ben Wheatley is is definitively our first production, which we were part of the development. We were part of the full financing and it was the first film shot in quarantine in the UK. Uh, and it's a
1: crazy, crazy movie. I, I watched a movie at like 10 o'clock at Sundance from my couch and it was the closest I had to a midnight movie experience. It was, it's just wild, all outdoors in the woods. and I, I, I think it's
0: very, very trippy. And you know, it, it sort of happens
1: in, in some other
0: world where There is a pandemic going on. Uh, So it's, it feels loosely where we're at now, but uh, I love Ben Wheatley. I've worked with him previously. So, uh, you know, it was exciting to pull off and, and, you know, we're going to do more of that. So while that's not new for other companies, it's certainly new for us.
1: We're gonna to try to. So I know it. we've
2: got some questions coming in, but yeah. I do want to get the Alamo question in. Yeah, thank before... you. Yeah, yeah, because I, um, you know, they, you're a partner with them, and uh, they filed Sharon Chapter Cosa, 11, yeah. um, and they're kind of the first wave, I think, of of what may be happening with a lot of theaters in order to to survive. What's your take on on how they're going to do here?
0: Well, you know, Tim League is an old friend of mine, and I met him. Long ago, uh, I was talking earlier about my, my love of Austin and and seeing, you know, the exhibition scene in a whole different light. Uh, and, you know, Tim is responsible for that. So Tim is my co-founder in Neon. Uh, you know, we, 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 uh, we don't have any connection to the Alamo, but we certainly do a lot of work with them. So, uh, you know, the reality is this was inevitable. Uh, And I think there will be more chains that that follow suit. Um, I think they're going to come back stronger. uh, And and I think there's a real opportunity for growth when audiences do return. Um, No doubt about it, it completely sucks. Uh, And, you know, one of my favorite theaters, the Brooklyn Alamo, I've had so many experiences there, whether it was Moonlight with a bottle of wine or... uh, Black Panther, you know, at ten a.m. with my whole family, just seeing a world that we never, never imagined anybody could put on film. Uh, and so I, I, I really, it, it's it's terrible news, but but the reality is, I just want to ensure, reassure everybody that I think they're going to come back stronger than ever. And uh, you know, um, and, and absolutely, Tim's not going anywhere.
1: That's good to hear. I mean, I, I will always treasure the opportunity to be in, in theaters that welcome the kind of liveliness that that chain sort of steeped its its brand on early on. It's like when I went to the Ritz in Austin, I was like, why the hell can't we do this in New York? And then realized at that point it was illegal to drink in movie theaters. And I was like, someone needs to go to Albany and fix this in behold Nighthawk. And yeah, yeah. So, you know, <laughs> it's like things have evolved since then and everybody's got a taste of it. So we're going to want that to come back. We have two more questions we're going to squeeze in, if that's okay. One yeah. comes from... Evan Stewart, who is asking, he says, for many cinephiles, the pandemic has been this mixed blessing. Many of us have not been to theaters, but the rise of streaming festivals has given us unprecedented access to films we normally would have waited months to see in theaters, which is true. So, it was available in all 50 states and so forth. So do you see that level of accessibility waning after the pandemic comes to an end? How do you as a distributor try to ensure accessibility while maintaining profitability, especially now that cinephiles have had a taste of this year,
0: yeah. Listen, I, the virtual the community question. of cinephiles is growing closer, closer and closer together. You know, Letterboxd is a great example of that. Three point three million users around the world who love simply rating film. I mean, that's amazing. Uh, and I and I think the virtual success of Sundance, the largest festival they've ever had. I mean, it's not to be ignored, and I don't think it's going away. But, uh, you know, I woke up at 6.30 a.m. this morning to do an hour and a half think tank with a lot of festival directors around the world asking this very question. How do we take advantage of this democratized uh, opportunity of how festivals have run inside of the pandemic while also not giving up on the things that we really do care about, cinema and festivals, going to theater, uh, networking with people that you, you know, who, who love the same films that you do. It, and, and, and the joke was, we don't want to do this too well because we never want to give up on that. And, and right. so I, I think it's going to be a difficult balance. And and ultimately the crux is, you know, a lot of the films that we saw at Sundance this year that were world premieres uh, available for acquisition. I, I don't know that, um, I think it's gonna be hard to repeat that for some of those films. They're gonna to want to be exclusively in the library, not online. And if you're not there, you don't get to see it. Now, I, I, I do think though, that we should try to find a balance. And and the more people that see these films, the better. Uh, it's a perfect launch pad. I think piracy is always gonna be an issue, but I don't think it's been an issue so far for any of these festivals, whether it was Toronto, you know, we premiered Ammonite at Toronto, while I was in theater in Toronto itself, you know, the virtual part of the f- festival, uh, you know, the film was not launched everywhere. And so for everyone's concerns, I was happy to say, see that, yeah, this absolutely worked. Um, but the reality is, darn it, I really miss seeing Ammonite and it's, you know, I've never seen Ammonite on the big screen. I, like,
2: definitely on the big screen. So I definitely want to see that one on the big screen. It was so beautiful.
0: And, and not seeing that in what would have been its world premiere in either Cannes or Telluride, yeah, I, I, I think that that, you know, ultimately, I, I, I think, you know, it was unfair to Francis Lee, certainly, but I cannot believe I have not seen that film in a the theater.
1: So we have one, one last question here comes from Todd Remus, and he's asking something that's sort of a, a technical question, but it, he's asking about how pricing has changed for acquisitions. How do you expect to acquire films in the next year more or less than you typically would? It's funny because at Sundance this past year, the the great... Neon Hulu Palm Springs deal of 2020 that was sort of looming largest, the biggest deal in history was unseated by this $25 million Apple deal uh, for Coda. And I know you're friends with some people over there, but maybe you could tell us a little bit about, I mean, what is, you know, do you think those price tags are going to keep going up because of all these streaming characters and how is that affecting the way that you can chase stuff you're really passionate about?
2: You have to get the stuff early before they get to see it,
1: really, right? I, I think part of it is,
0: you know, speed has always been our number one tool. You know, we, we act very quickly. Uh, you know, I I, I mentioned that, that we're all sort of working inside of the streaming economy, whether you're an old world distributor uh, or you're HBO Max, Netflix, Amazon, or Apple. You know, those are the new prices of film. Uh, and and the sad thing is that unfortunately some of those prices they're not really chasing the film they're chasing the headline and and once the headline uh, hype dies down it's really going to come back to the movie and 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 I think that things will level out eventually they're not going to level out anytime soon uh, I, I I definitely feel you know I feel for some of my colleagues internationally who who are in territories that don't have the opportunity of working with a streaming partner like Hulu, you know, they, they are unable to compete for some of these larger acquisitions, which frankly they would probably be better served or those films would be better served in those hands than a simple worldwide streaming launch. And, you know, there's always going to be filmmakers who want exactly what we offer. Uh, The good news is that we can offer that with the benefit of, a real powerhouse streamer uh, in tow in Hulu. So, you know, I I think we figured it out. I think that's the right model. Um, I can assure you that if I, even if I had $25 million to spend on CODA, I would not launch that film day and date. I'm not even sure I would give that film only a three week to 30 day exclusive theatrical. I think I would build that in the absolute most traditional way because in success that film, is going to be far more impactful in its streaming window. Uh, Not as a day and Nothing
2: beats three weeks of word of mouth in a theater. Nothing.
0: And and the audience, the collective emotional momentum that will be built inside of that screening, uh, you will not be able to replicate that at home. And we all know that. And had I been put in the position of having to launch Parasite that way, I don't know that we would have been as successful. And frankly, you know what? I still wonder why, you know, Ted Sarandos and Netflix insist on launching movies like Roma that way. It makes no sense to me. Yes, they launched it theatrically, but it was still in a compressed window. Uh, It's infuriating. They kept it in
2: theaters a long time, though. In that particular case, they did. They kept it there for five months. People don't realize that.
0: The, but but the reality is, making it more exclusive, I, I still, it doesn't harm the value of the film for them eventually. It certainly, I think, only increases the value of the film inside of award season. And you know what? I, I, this is not the question that was asked, but I, I want to put it out there. I think every film that qualifies for the Academy Awards must absolutely report its box office.
1: Hmm. Mm-hmm. I have who, heard that that is something
2: that feels like it's going away, Tom. It,
1: it, it feels and like I,
2: everybody's enjoying not having they, those numbers. They've hated
1: it for it. decades. Well, well, like,
2: the problem is, is that you promote it when you have a success. You can't hide it when it's a failure, and that's the issue, right, Tom? Well, but
0: but but if if theatrical doesn't matter to you, and you don't think it affects the ultimate, you know, result of. Of how many nominations you get or wins, well then, what do you care if the box office is reported or not? The reality is, you do care, and and for that reason, I think it's whether you're going day and day, whether you have to launch your film exclusively. Honestly, I don't think any of that matters. All that really matters is when you do launch it, which you do have to launch it theatrically. You should be required to report your box office. And I will and, join.
1: I'll join you on this crusade if also everybody's totally transparent about VOD figures at the same time.
2: Well, they're All never platforms. gonna do that. <laughs> they're not gonna do it. A, I mean, we'd love
1: it problem. if they like, did. We don't know how much these things are permeating culture overall. It's always been anecdotal for years and years anyway. So that's sort of the challenge of this. And and,
0: and, and I think this is the first, you know, building block in in, in trying to, I think, Reevaluate the streaming economy, you know, that these things are really valuable. Artists want to know what they're worth, and, and, and that's their value. And they should hold on to that, and they should reap the benefits when things really do take off. And so, uh, you know, the $25 million sales, great. You know, I think it's, it's wonderful now, and it's wonderful when these streaming platforms can make movies at exorbitant budgets. Uh, you know, I do think that that's awesome. But the reality is, I think it's going to come back down to earth when people value transparency and and share in the upside. And so, you know, I think being able to require folks to report box office is a good step in that direction.
1: Well, on that awesomely provocative note, We could keep going. There's so much to talk about. I was going to ask you about
2: vaccinated seniors coming back to theaters. (laughs) Is that going to happen?
1: That's a real conversation. Well, my
0: dad is 90 years old and my mom is 80. They've got both vaccines, uh, the first and second shot. They are ready to go. They're dying to go to the theater. They but love, also,
1: I mean, they—they're probably the badassness probably runs in the Quinn family, right? Like <laughs> is it really the vaccine? I don't know how or... they do
0: it. I have no idea. You know, they're like, "Why don't you come see us? We're vaccinated." I was like, "I haven't been vaccinated. I, I don't want to put you in harm's way." But uh, they're I, okay I, now. Yeah, I, I think I think uh, I think it'll happen. Let's let, let's you know the canary in the coal mine is let's see what happens in New York over the next
1: eight weeks exactly yeah well tom i'll see you at the alamo thank you for being here this was a lot of fun thanks everyone for tuning in have a good one thanks guys theater
2: theater love it bye-bye
0: with lucky landslots you can get lucky just about anywhere
2: dearly beloved we are gathered here today to has anyone seen the bride and groom